Today's reading is from Matthew 5, 1 through 12. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. So they, so for, for, so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Praise be to Christ. Thanks, CJ, for that wonderful reading of scripture. Good morning, everyone. My name is Paul Lim. I serve here as scholar in residence. Um, that means I occasionally preach and lead Sunday school and so on and so forth. Um, so when I heard that I'll be kicking off the series on the Sermon on the Mount today, um, that became a bit of a burden for me. Because the Sermon on the Mount presents a huge challenge for any disciple when you read that text and take that very seriously uh, because it serves as a mirror that shows that I so quickly fall off the mark and fail and falter as well. When I also heard that uh, this first sermon in the series on the uh, on Sermon on the Mount will be on Sunday after the election Sunday, it also became a little bit more burden to talk about somehow the two together. Furthermore, when I found out earlier this week when I was in D.C. for work about the result of the election, I wanted to call in sick. When at dinner last night with some friends, I asked uh, the friends there to pray for me because I have to preach at church today. And one friend said, well, you can have more of this red wine and call in sick tomorrow morning. I said, wouldn't that be great if I had too much of the blood of Jesus and can come to work to teach and preach? So our task today, well, I guess most of it, uh, mine, is stupendously formidable. So I'd love it if you could join with me in a word of prayer at this moment. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. That no event in this universe comes as a surprise to you. That whereas all of us were in a state of surprise, you are not. And you call us to yourself in this, in this morning to come and to worship you in spirit and in truth. And you remind us through the power of the Holy Spirit that you are still in control. And we desire to see that through our eyes of faith, deep in our souls, we want to be reminded of the fact that in you there is true peace and true joy and true love. As we look to your text now, as we begin this series on the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest teaching that Jesus ever uttered, Help us to do so with eagerness and desire to be transformed into your likeness as the Spirit of God continues to mold us according to that. So be with us as we now encounter and engage your scriptures. And in your name we pray these things. Amen. 
So we are kicking off this new series of sermons from the Sermon on the Mount, and as I said, perhaps the most famous teaching section from all of Jesus' ministry. An Elizabethan Puritan named William Perkins said that the Sermon on the Mount is the key to the entire scripture, since here Christ opens the sum of the Old and the New Testament. So as we do so, I want to ask you, um, ask us a question. So what do Augustine of Hippo, Janet Jackson, and Jesus Christ have in common? So Augustine, Janet Jackson, and Jesus. I asked this question elsewhere, and someone said none of them was white. Well, true, but that's not the answer I was looking for. Sure, Augustine was a North African, likely in modern-day Algeria. Sure, Janet Jackson is African-American. And sure, Jesus was a Palestinian Jew. But what I am looking for is that Jesus, Janet Jackson, and Augustine of Hippo all talked and sang about control. Control. Augustine's major uh, masterpiece is a book entitled The City of God Against the Pagans, which was completed in 426 AD and was occasioned by the sack of Rome, uh, the eternal city that was impregnable, and many had believed that this empire will be forever and ever. But the city of Rome was sacked by the Visigoths when they invaded in 410 and took over. It left the group of Romans in a state of shock. Romans blamed the deplorable state to Christians because ever since the Roman Empire abandoned its traditional deities and opted for the Christian God, bad things have happened, they reasoned, and this is the result. So Augustine wrote a, a defense, an answer, in which he shows a beautiful philosophy of history. And the basic gist is this. There's a city of God and the city of man. The latter is always seeking to supplant the former and maintain its control away from God. So their destiny is to gain control and keep it. Augustine says that at the core of our original sin is our declaration of independence from God as we seek control of our own destiny. I want you to think about that. Janet Jackson had a hit song called Control from the album Control that went to number one in Billboard charts back in 1986, exactly 30 years ago. They're probably showing you my own age. This is what she said in that song. This is a story about control. My control, control of what I say, control of what I do. And this time, I'm going to do it my way. I hope you enjoy this as much as I do. Are we ready? I am, she says, because it's all about control, and I've got lots of it. Jesus Christ will have lots to say about control as we listen to and wrestle with the implications of his teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. For Jesus, surrendering one's control of one's own life is the key element in discipleship. You're not your own. You've been bought at a price, so writes the Apostle Paul. So let me say that again. Surrendering one's own control of one's life is at the core of Christian discipleship. So every four years, the entire nation here gets to think about who is in control. Right? politically, socially, and culturally. Rightly, we get worked up about it, spend money on it, and follow it on Twitter, on CNN.com, Fox News, MSNBC, Breitbart.com, New York Times, The Nation. You get the picture. I try to be as bipartisan as possible. As it just happened against a great deal of odds, a trifecta happened this last week. 
the White House, the Senate, and the House of Representatives all have come under majority Republican control. Soon, the Supreme Court will also be likely under conservative majority. Now, for some, it's a cause for much rejoicing, and for others, it's a cause for a revolt. Some are excited because of it, seeing it as a fulfillment of their aspirations and one well worth the wait. Yet other Americans are exasperated by it, seeing it as a failure of democracy and dangerous expressions of the triumph of all kinds of isms and phobias. Racism, Islamophobia, xenophobia, homophobia, etc., and etc. Both parties all sought control of the nation. Some won in a most improbable, dramatic fashion. Others lost it in a most unanticipated, tragic fashion. So here we are, standing as a sort of a divided nation. Well, where do we go from here? Or perhaps more poignantly, to whom shall we go? The gospel according to humanity or mankind is this. Seek control, conquer control of the situation, all situations if possible. If not, then at least as much as possible for you. And do whatever you can to keep control. Don't ever surrender it, because the moment you do surrender, you become a loser. Augustine's City of God powerfully shows that in the invention of religions apart from one true God of Israel meant that humanity seeks control even of what or how we worship. For Augustine and for Moses, that was at the crux of idolatry, that is creating gods in our own image rather than worship the one who has made us in his own image. So let me ask you, how do we seek control in general? Why do we seek control of our own governments. You may say, that's a stupid question, Paul. We want to control things because that by doing so, we're at peace. Will godly influence in government necessarily and inevitably usher in the kingdom of heaven, the reign of God? We will not settle this today, but as we go through this month, several months-long series on the Sermon on the Mount, we will together as a congregation seek God's wisdom and loving correction as a perfect law of freedom fulfilled in Jesus will continue to show what we are meant to be as the Spirit of God continues to draw us ever closer to our Lord. For those of you who believe that we must have control of the government for us to usher in the kingdom of God, I want to recommend a book to you. Since I'm the scholar in residence, I feel one of my job description and requirements is offer books and book recommendations. Larry Hurtado is a New Testament scholar who used to teach at the University of Edinburgh for a long, long time. He has a book, very interesting title, and it is, Why on Earth Would Anyone Become a Christian in the First Three Centuries? Right? Why on earth would anyone become a Christian in the first three centuries is a great question. Because Hurtado says that, you know what, if you became a Christian, you became a cultural loser. There is nothing of social capital, capital that you gain by becoming a Christian. Whereas here in the South, here in Nashville, becoming a Christian may actually be a good thing. When my wife and I moved here from Boston 11 years ago, people asked us, where do you go to church? They didn't ask me, are you religious? They simply asked, where do you go to church? So imagine if you're an atheist, you're having to come up with all kinds of reasons to you know, just face the fact that I'm not a believer, but there is a lot of assumption that is held here in the South, and so to be a Christian is a social capital gain. Whereas in the first centuries, the time of Jesus, to become a Christian, man, you are actually a cultural loser in doing so. 
They, necessarily, they didn't necessarily seek control of the government as much as seek control of their lives in their surrender to that of Jesus Christ. Now, I hope that can be taken as a bipartisan statement. It is not a statement about whether we should seek it and surrender it, but I think as followers of Jesus Christ, we must critically re-examine what it is that we're doing in the political process and what are our political aspirations and to what end. Because Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, will radically challenge our own assumptions about politics, our assumption about cultural difference, our assumptions about what it means to live a life worth living, and to put it very bluntly and simply, what it means to be a winner and what it means to be a loser. So let's dive right in. One of the key aspects of the Sermon on the Mount centers on the relationship between Jesus and the disciples. First of all, a disciple is someone who follows, right? Someone in the act of doing so has surrendered control of one's own life to Jesus. Right? Let me say that again. A disciple is someone who, has, who follows Jesus and who is in the process, daily process of surrendering one's control to Jesus. It's a daily struggle for me, as I'm sure it is for you, and that is partly why I don't like to preach on the Sermon on the Mount, because it always tells me how awful I am. But that's only one half of the story, as we will see soon. So that's why we don't call Judas Iscariot, for example, a, a, a disciple, because he wrested control back from Jesus. He realized, wait a minute, if I follow this guy, we're going to actually lose our kingdom. The sort of earthly kingdom that I desire isn't going to come about. So he took back control of himself, and that's why we don't call Judas Iscariot a disciple, someone who follows ultimately. What about you and me? What about me and you? Some of us say that we follow Jesus, but deep down, we want Jesus to follow me. I say I follow Jesus, but as I examine my own motives and the way that I act and think, I come to realize starkly that I want Jesus to follow me and bless my agendas and somehow remain in control myself of my own life. I realize every day that I don't like to surrender, even to Jesus. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his classic, The Cost of Discipleship, has a few things to say about that. Regarding the Sermon on the Mount, Bonhoeffer said, Jesus has spoken, his is the word, ours the obedience. Only in doing of it does the word of Jesus retain its power among us. Further, Bonhoeffer said very pithily and powerfully, he said when Jesus calls a man or a woman, he bids him come and die. Our refusal to die to our desire for control gives rise to cheap grace, Bonhoeffer said, and he said, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession, cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Then, if at the core of the Sermon on the Mount is an issue of the cost of discipleship, it would be crucial for us to know who exactly it is that we are called to follow. Who is this Jesus who got up on the mount and began to teach? So what we will do to, uh, for the rest of our time is to look at the four snapshots of Jesus under the title, Beauty Inside and Out. It'll be a weaving of our text that we uh, have heard read, Matthew 5, 1 through 12, and a few other texts from the Gospel of Matthew and Luke. So the four snapshots of Jesus that we'll see are as follows. One, Jesus the refugee. Two, Jesus the egomaniacal teacher with a question mark. Three, Jesus the ear healer 
our own ears. Fourthly, Jesus, the once and future king. So Jesus, the refugee, Jesus, the teacher, Jesus, the ear healer, Jesus, the once and future king will be the four points that we will go through pretty quickly today. So let's look at the first snapshot, Jesus, the refugee. Think about it this way, friends. The one who began to teach the disciples from the mount was a refugee, indeed a fugitive from the law of King Herod. We see it in chapter 2, verses 13 and 15 of Matthew's gospel. But you know what, though? We don't normally think of Jesus as a refugee, do we? Perhaps some of us have never, ever thought of Jesus as a refugee. We think of people in Syria, away from Syria as refugees. We think of some people living around Nolansville Road of our city as refugees. We think of some people like that as refugees, but we hardly ever dare to think of our Lord as a refugee because Jesus is King of Kings. Jesus is the Lord of Lords, not a refugee, we think. But hang on, let's look at it together. See, this picture of Jesus, as it says in Matthew chapter 2, that, you know, as uh, when they had come, uh, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and says, Get up, take the child and his mother, and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Jesus was a refugee with a price on his head. That's what it says right here. This is what N.T. Wright has to say about this particular story. The gospel of Jesus, the Messiah, was born then in a land and at a time of trouble, tension, violence, and fear. Banish all thoughts of peaceful Christmas scenes here, at least not the first one. We celebrate it as a wonderful thing, and that's understandable, but we also need to remember and remind ourselves of Jesus, the refugee. This is the one who taught us from the Sermon on the Mount. This is how Israel's Redeemer was to appear. This is how God would set about liberating his people and bringing justice to the whole world. No point in arriving in comfort when the whole world is in misery. No point in having an easy life when the world suffers violence and injustice. If Christ is to be Emmanuel, God with us, he must be with us where the pain is. And that's what the story of Jesus the refugee is about. End quote. Only the Redeemer, who has been a refugee, according to God's most perfect plan, understands at the existential level the real presence of fear, the real presence of hopelessness, and absolute dependence on God. Think about that. Jesus, following the perfect will of the Father, came into this world, not in some kind of palatial precincts, but away in a manger. Now, we romanticize the manger, but it's a stinking place. It's a place that is really unfit for birth of all of our children here at CPC. None of our parents would say, let's go to a manger and have my child be born there. You'd be checked into a mental ward if you did that. Yet the Lord of lords, God of all gods, when he visited this world for that one definitive visit, that is where God said, I would like my son to be born. And of all lots that you could have, Jesus became a refugee. What is the point? It is to fulfill Israel's aspirations because in Matthew 2, it's quoting from the book of Hosea, out of Egypt, I call my son. It is that what Adam and Eve were not able to do, it is what Israel wasn't able to do, Jesus, God does it in and through this faithfulness and obedience of Jesus, the son of God, the refugee indeed. 
You know what? Gandhi is simply known, Mohandas Gandhi is simply known to many of us as Gandhi. And when he died, he had a few things in his possession. And one of which was life and teachings of Jesus Christ. And the other was the Gospel of John. On his wall was a picture of Jesus hanging. And it says, he is our peace. He said that the Sermon on the Mount in particular was the text that taught him the beauty of non-retaliation and non-violent pursuit of justice and peace. And for Gandhi, he says, here is Jesus that I could relate with, one who hung out with the losers of society, those who are social misfits and pariahs, and a true motley crew of unimpressive folks, male and female. In other words, Jesus shows a clear picture of a Christian counterculture. Look with me in the first three Beatitudes in Matthew 5. They're called Beatitudes because they come from the Latin word beatus, which means blessed. Listen to what Jesus said. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for there is a kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Really? For real? No way. Tell that to any educator from urban public school to a suburban private school, from community college to Oxford. Tell that to President Obama or Chancellor Angela Merkel or Vladimir Putin. What would they say? Poor in spirit, the basket cases who mourn and the weak and meek. Theirs is what? The kingdom of heaven, Com comfort and inheritance of earth. Get out of here. I want you to wrestle with what Jesus is saying. We often just read it and just let it just get over our head. But if you actually care to read word by word and really soak in the implications of what Jesus is teaching, this is really countercultural. Because you will not teach your children, I don't think, be poor. Because Luke's gospel renders it, blessed are the poor, full stop. Yet that's what Jesus is saying. Being broken in the presence of God, being poor in spirit, you are actually blessed. Because you will have the kingdom of heaven within you. You see the countercultural nature of Jesus, the refugee's teaching. Let's be honest. Do you agree with Jesus on this? Is that your life principle? We don't really because we don't want to surrender control. We follow only, perhaps at our own terms, Jesus the refugee, no, 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 get out of town, Paul. I want Christ the king. I want the Lord of all cosmos, not a loser refugee. But friends, we don't have a choice. Let's take a listen to Bonhoeffer again. He says, on the other hand, there is not just cheap grace, but also costly grace. And it says it is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ, not ourselves. It is costly because it costs a man his life, and it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin, and grace because it justifies a sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his one and only Son. You were bought at a price. And what has cost God so much cannot be cheap for us. Is it cheap for you? Or is it costly for you? Let's move to the second point. Jesus, the egomaniacal teacher with a question mark. You know what? Let me say something that may be a surprise to you. But if you've been reading your Gospels, this shouldn't be a surprise. Did you know that many people regard him as an egomaniac? They challenge his authority. Because they said, by what authority are you saying these things? Because let's face it, did he come from a good family? No. Did he live in a very good zip code? No. It was an absolute podunk town, Nazareth. And even his would-be followers said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I don't believe it. 
You pick a state or you pick a town in, in our country and say that place is the most podong place, that's where Jesus came from. His family is kind of dubious. There's some rumor going around that Mary might have had something going on with a Roman soldier, and that's how Jesus came about. Imagine living under that sort of a cloud of rumors. And as far as we know, he got no formal rabbinical training. So no school, no family, no great wealth, no great house, and this is Jesus. And he had the audacity to go around and say things like this. You have heard it said, blah, 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 about adultery, about murder, about love for neighbor that we will read about and study together throughout the Sermon on the Mount. He would say things like, you have heard it said, but I tell you. You know what he's doing? He's actually assuming for himself this authoritative place of interpreting God's word. And people are, of course, upset, especially the teachers of the law. They're demanding credentials. They're saying things like this. You're going to be a doctor? Show us your credential as a doctor. If you're going to be an architect, show me that you're a legit architect. If you're going to be a teacher, show me that you have some kind of teacher's training because you have none of it, yet you're going around saying that your word is true. I don't want you to forget that. See, Jesus was a controversialist because according to the establishment, here's a major threat. Nobody from no-name town is coming and claiming for himself this teacher's authority. Notice these words even from our own text, okay? Notice in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 5. Jesus says, because of me. Jesus says, reward in heaven. Jesus says, prophets before you. Let me put that in context. Jesus says, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. And he says, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who are before you. Wow, you know what Jesus has just done? He's basically connecting his own ministry with all the prophets that had gone before him. He's basically saying all the prophets who are persecuted and marginalized, well, they were actually kind of foretelling and presaging what I was going to do and what the kind of treatment that you're going to receive. So Jesus has the audacity, that's why I call him the egomaniacal teacher with a question mark, because many thought without the question mark, there were exclamation mark. This guy's an egomaniac. Later in chapter 728, it says that when he was finished, the crowds were astonished at his teaching because he taught as one with authority. Authority. He taught as one with authority. He comes across as a sort of egomaniacal teacher, as C.S. Lewis said, you have to take Jesus really seriously. He's either a liar, lunatic, or the Lord of all. He's either telling the truth or thinks that he's telling the truth but lying about it because he's delusional, or he is, in fact, telling the truth. So we need to wrestle together with who Jesus is, Jesus the refugee, Jesus the egomaniacal teacher, and the third point, Jesus the ear healer, as we see in Matthew 26, 51 through 54, and the Beatitudes 5, 6, and 7. Jesus calls the disciples, calls them blessed or favored by God. If you are merciful, Jesus says, you will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for you will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. You know what, friends? What we are really like can be seen in our most desperate hours. So think about the desperate hour in the life and ministry of Jesus. Think about the moment before he's about to be arrested. Okay? Do you remember that scene? What happens? 
Jesus is about to be arrested, and someone who is impetuous gets in the middle of the fray. Who is that? Peter. What does Peter do? Peter cuts off the ear of Malchus, the high priest's servant. Do you know that story? Right? And then what does Jesus say in this context? Does Jesus say, way to go, Peter, do more? No, 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 no. Jesus actually rebukes Peter and says, you know what? Don't you realize that I got 12 legions of angels that I can call upon if I wanted to, and they can come and take care of business? They'll be sort of like the celestial navy seals, and they can do things if I really wanted them to. But Jesus, I'm not going to do that. Jesus, in fact, says, you know what? They who live by the sword will what? Die by the sword. And you know what? In that most frantic hour of his ministry and life, what does he do? He says, I ain't going to call no angels to come down, but this is, this is what I'm going to do. Before I get arrested, I'm going to actually, in the craziness of getting arrested, I'm going to take the time, take the time to put this poor chap's ear back. In the most vulnerable hour of his life in ministry, he has to care for the opponent. I don't care wherever you are on the political spectrum. What we need to learn as Christians, if you are a Christian, if you follow Jesus Christ, then we need to see Jesus, the ear healer. He's the one who had taught his disciples and walked that walk and talked the talk. He said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. And that's exactly what he does. You know, so often we stand too far off from hearing Jesus. Now, let's, let's think about that for a moment. You know, Jesus got up on the mountainside, right? Did he have cordless microphone like I do here? No. Think about the acoustic challenges of that sort of first century context. Right? So there will be some acoustic challenges. And I don't know if you know Monty Python. I don't know if you were into it. I, you know, I could, so when I was in college, you know, my friends were always watching Monty Python. And I laughed along, but I had no idea what they were saying. I had no idea why my friends were laughing until I went to England for my graduate training. Then I got to hear people talk like this. Oh, I get it. You know, there is one of those movies, uh, Life of Brian. Have you seen Life of Brian? If you haven't seen it, I want you to Google on YouTube, Blessed are the Cheesemakers. Okay? Because... Here's what happens. Jesus is talking in this Monty Python, you know, Life of Brian, and he's talking, but people are having a hard time hearing him. And Jesus said, blessed are peacemakers, and one woman turns to the man and says, what did he just say? And he said, I think he said, blessed are cheesemakers. And then she says, why on earth would he say that blessed are cheesemakers? And another person chimes in and says, oh, no, 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 you shouldn't take that literally. He meant blessed are the, you know, uh, 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 dairy workers, because that's how you are to take that statement. You know what they have done is take that sort of hermeneutical latitude, right? Jesus didn't say blessed are cheesemakers, but people who are hard of hearing said, no, what he actually meant to say is blessed are all dairy workers. We don't hear Jesus well. We interpret it as we like, don't we? we when Jesus is blessed are peacemakers, we go home saying, yeah, I remember Paul Lim's sermon. Yeah, the only thing I remember is blessed are cheesemakers. It was kind of funny because after the first sermon, one person came up to me and said, you know, I'll never forget what you said. I said, which one is it? He goes, blessed are the cheesemakers. I said, you know, that's not the intent at all. The whole point of the sermon is don't be like that. Don't be like that, but that's what we remember. And I bet you, many of you, the only thing you'll remember from this sermon is, oh yeah, Paul M said, blessed are the cheesemakers. I better go look up on YouTube, Life of Brian. Go do it, but remember, that's not the point. The point is that blessed are the peacemakers. We stand too far off so that we don't hear Jesus rightly. We willfully stand way too far off, yet pretend we are hearing him, but we cannot pretend it in front of our Lord, whose knowledge is omniscient. Did you know that the love of God is omniscient love? 
You see, this Jesus, who said these wonderful things from the Sermon on the Mount, is one who knows us perfectly, who knows, as Pastor David always says, who knows our sins past, present, and future, not you know, even those we haven't even concocted yet in our imagination. Yet God has covenanted to love us. See, God's love is omniscient love. Our human love is always impartial and therefore provisional love. Right? We don't know everything about one another. Some of you young people, if you're dating, when you start dating, would you back up your emotional dump truck and dump it all in the first date and tell you all your laundry list? I don't think so because we are afraid of what? Rejection. We're afraid of rejection. Jesus, the one who knows us all, perfectly calls us to be peacemakers in our time of much violence, confusion, and injustice. Fourthly and lastly, Jesus the once and future king, Matthew 7, 21 and 22. Let's look at that together if you have your Bibles or if you have your phones, open it up and let's look at it. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I'll tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. I don't know about you, but this is a frightening passage, isn't it? You come to Jesus and say, Lord, Lord, did we not do all of these things? And Jesus will say, I never knew you. Away from you, evildoers. But the point of it is this. The real point that Jesus is trying to deliver is he is the once and future king. When he comes back, he's going to be the future king who is going to be all of our life, all of our lives and all of our endeavors hang on balance based upon what Jesus will say about who we are and whose we are. You see, there will be many who will perform these works, but Jesus will say, you know, you haven't done it by belonging to the right agency. You ought to be doing things in the name of the Father, right? Because that's what it says, who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. But there's a very interesting relationship with the Father who is in heaven and Jesus himself. Jesus has the audacity once again or authority to claim upon himself the right of allowing people in or rejecting people to be out. Such is the authority of the once and future king. When I think about this Sermon on the Mount, again, I get kind of bummed out, depressed. How can I ever keep this thing? So I was wrestling, wrestling, and thinking about this sermon throughout the week. And I just remembered this, one of my new favorite songs. So I used to be, I think I might have mentioned this to you, I used to be a DJ when I was in college, so I relate with a lot of songs and kind of thinking about how I will teach materials. You know this uh, uh, group called Our City? Do you know, some of the young high school students may know this song. I, I think it was a number one song quite recently, Locked Away. Our City sang it with um, the lead singer from Maroon 5, Adam Levine. Anyone know that song? Am I the only one? Oh, great. Thank you. Thank you. For, okay. Because that's my favorite song. I play it all the time. Here's why. Because to me, that song really encapsulates the beauty of the gospel. Are you ready to listen to this? It's called Locked Away. If I got locked away and we lost it all today, tell me honestly, would you still love me the same? If I showed you my flaws and I couldn't be strong, tell me honestly, would you still love me the same? Now tell me, would you really ride for me? Baby, tell me, would you die for me? Would you spend your whole life with me? Would you be there to always hold me down? Tell me, would you really cry for me? Baby, don't lie to me. If I didn't have anything, I want to know, would you still stick around? This is a crazy high bar for any relationship. So this is what happened. I, was, I love this song. I was dancing with my wife. And when the line says, baby, tell me, would you die for me? I asked her while the dancing. And Jesus smiled and I stopped dancing. 
She didn't say yes. I'm dancing away, and the baby, would you die for me? And she just smiled and didn't answer. I just like, oh no, she's not gonna die for me. <laughs> I'm not trying to break up marriages here at all, but ask yourselves one another that question: Would you die for me? Many of us, if we're really honest, would have some second or third thoughts about that. But you know what? Let me tell you why I love this song. There is somebody who was locked away for you, albeit for one evening. Jesus, one evening of jail sentence is equivalent to our eternities of jail sentences. Just as our city with Adam Levine asks, baby, would you die for me? Tell me, would you die for me? Jesus not only would tell us that he would die for us, he did die for us. He did die for you. So as we come to study and wrestle together with the Sermon on the Mount, we need to remember the, the new law interpreter, the, the new Moses called Jesus, but also the same one who has taught these wonderful things to us is going to be the one whose body will be broken, blood will be shed, as we'll come to the table that Jesus has prepared for us. That we need to come to see Jesus as the teacher, yes? As the refugee, yes? As the ear healer, yes? But also as the once and future king whose body was broken and blood was shed. Let us come to the table of Jesus. Let's pray.